one of the most amazing passages of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips, because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, here I am, send me. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this beautiful passage of scripture that shows us just how holy you are, that you are the king of this universe and that your majesty knows no bounds. So I pray that you would be with Pastor Patrick as he preaches from this text. I pray that you'd be with us, turn our hearts and our minds to the study of your word. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. Good morning. All right, cool. Sounds good. That's what we're starting with? We won't end that way, I'll tell you that much. We're going places today. Brothers and sisters, today is the appendix to the Relentless Gospel. Last week, Jeff wrapped it up in Acts 28 with the acknowledgement that Paul is in Rome. He's preaching the gospel. In some ways, it was a fulfillment of the beginning of the book. In Acts chapter 8, or Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, And behold, when the Holy Spirit's power comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And at that time, Rome truly was the ends of the earth, for everyone came to Rome. And so we see the conclusion of the book of Acts take place right there. And yet right before the sign-off happens, it's an abrupt end. It's a shocking end. There is no nicely tied, easy statement at the end. It just says, and Paul lived there. The end. So what? What do we do? The gospel is relentless. It began with 120 people gathered in an upper room. And you and I now sit here today. Over 600 people will be inside these two services today. And there will be thousands, millions of people across the globe who've dedicated their life to Christ. So how do we put a bow on this passage How do we put a bow on the relentless gospel in such a way that we acknowledge that what God began, he continues to do? And the way we do that is by recognizing the same God that began a good work in this world continues it because he's a God who still sits on the throne. Right before the sign-off happens and Luke writes the last couple verses, Paul quotes a verse, a couple, two verses, to the Jews in Rome. He quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and he tells them, You will always be looking but never perceiving, always desiring but never having, always being taught but never actually learning. That's my paraphrase, okay? We're going to get there in a sec. But Paul's recognition of saying that is actually something that we are going to end the book with. We're going to end in the book of Isaiah. Paul's quote of Isaiah in those two verses, it's what's called metalepsis. It's a fancy word. There's your Scrabble word for the day. Write that down. But it's it's a term and an understanding in which a small thing represents a big thing. A couple verses is used to represent a large idea, and that is the whole chapter of Isaiah 6. 
See, you and I use it all the time. If we were to say, hey, four score and seven years ago, what were we saying? The Gettysburg Address, if not the Civil War. If we say, I have a dream, what am I representing? Either Dr. King's speech or the whole civil rights movement. We, we do this. We practice it. And so at the end of Acts 28, when Paul quotes these verses to the Jews in Rome, he is bringing to their memory the whole of Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is confronted by the holiness, grandeur, and mightiness of God and falls low before him. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, from a people of unclean lips. But then notice what the Lord does. He will restore them, him, and then he'll send him and give him a mission. mission. He will send him on his way as a messenger of the gospel. Paul is quoting that because in many ways, Paul is connecting what is taking place in that moment in Rome with what has always taken place amongst God's people in this world, that God will reveal himself and many will reject it. But those that do seek repentance are healed and restored and are made right with God. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, my hope for us is that we see God and then desire to serve him. How do we go on that journey? How do we see God and then serve God? See, Isaiah 6 is important because it's an image and a picture of what this relentless gospel is. It's a glimpse behind the curtain of heaven to reveal what all people must come to know, that there is a high king of heaven and he is holy. And it shows us why the gospel is relentless and why the church continues to be God's messengers until the ends of the earth. Will you pray with me as we begin our time this morning? Our Lord and our God, I would ask for you to, as you did with Isaiah, in many ways, remove the veil of heaven that we may see and behold your glory, that we may see you as you are, and that we may come to repentance, we may come to uh, uh, decisions and directions that we may follow you and serve you. And so in our mind this morning, Father, will your spirit fill us with your, the power that he has that we may see and perceive what your truth is and we may be brought low if we need to be, that we may repent if we need to be, and ultimately what we were created to do, bring us to a desire to praise your holy name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your Bible with me, open up with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. And we're going to go through the whole chapter this morning. Isaiah is a prophet. This may be his commissioning. It may be his recommissioning. Ultimately, the uniqueness of this passage is it describes God uniquely amongst all of Scripture. Starting in verse 1, we need to recognize knowing God is encountering his holiness. So let's read again. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. And the foundations of the doorway shook at the sound of their voices and the temple was filled with smoke. You know where we start with all of this? With something clear and unmistakable. God is king. God is king. And the name of God spoken by Isaiah in this, translated, is Adonai, meaning the sovereign one. There is no other. Just like people say the Ohio State, which I think is weird. Okay, in this instance, it's not. This is the sovereign of all the universe, of all of creation. There is no other. 
He is the sovereign, and the evidence for his rule in being the sovereign over all things is his holiness. And so we need to describe what is holiness. See, we may not have a clear understanding of what God's holiness is. I think we all know the word, but our definitions and emphasis were different. They differ. And so we should start with a clear understanding of what does it mean for God to be holy? What is holiness? It starts with that God's holiness is something wholly other. W-H-O-L-L-Y. God's holiness is wholly something other. It is different, is unique, it stands apart, it is not like anything in this created world. We cannot make a comparison to it and it equate in that comparison. Every comparison we make to God and His holiness falls short in some, term, in some way, if not becomes outright heresy if you press that analogy. Ultimately, God's holiness is unique. Notice the unique phrase, God is high and lifted up. And then it says, the hem of his robe is filled the temple? Man, the hem of his robe filling the temple is a preposterous statement, is it not? It's odd, it's weird. Yet the preposterousness of that is intended to serve as a placeholder for the realized majesty of God's holiness. Now for kings and rulers and sovereigns of the earth, their uh, ranking, if you will, was predicated upon what they wore. Whoever wore the nicest thing, had the longest robe, was obviously the richest, wealthiest, most deserving of worship, honor, and praise. God, in this instance, the very least thing about a king, the hem of his robe, is filling the temple. It's a preposterous statement. But words fail, don't they? How can we accurately describe something that we don't even understand? It's wholly other. Well, we use the preposterous as a placeholder until we can see it and behold it. Isaiah is searching for ideas just how to describe what he's witnessing. But A.W. Tozer gives us a real understanding of why it is so difficult, if not impossible, for any of creation, let alone all of us, to understand God's holiness. Read with me when when he writes, We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then rising that the concept to its highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness cannot even be imagined. That is the uniqueness of God's holiness. See, where our minds naturally go, and rightfully so, is on purity. And that is absolutely a part of God's holiness. But it is more than that. And we can recognize it very clearly by what the angels, the seraphim, their name literally means burning one. They are on fire surrounding God. They are pure beings. And yet, what do they have to do in the face of God's glory and His holiness radiating? They have to cover their face with two wings and cover their face with two wings. God's holiness is wholly other. It is unique. It is set apart. It is something that we want to behold. I pray you desire to behold it and want it. It's what fills me with anticipation for heaven. I used to think that heaven would be boring sitting around with a bunch of Christians singing worship songs. I heard someone say that once and I went, yeah, I like the sound of that. I'm going to say that too. And then as I matured and grew up, I would recognize 
that it is something that comes out of believers when we're in the face and presence of God and his holiness. It is not something forced upon us, but something that ushers out of us. We cannot contain it. That is the result of God's holiness because it's so unique. I can spend eternity in heaven confidently knowing I will never grow old or dull because that holiness is wholly other than me. I will stare into it in wonder, in awe, and result in praise. Brothers and sisters, that is the future that we have to look forward to. God's holiness is wholly other. But his holiness is also invigorating. So just like these angels are hiding their face from it, hiding their feet because of the the radiance coming off of God, they're still drawn into it. What do they say? They are calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of armies. See, the angels call to one another just like we described. It's not a task. It's not something put upon them. In fact, we're inferring that since their creation, they've been doing this, and they have not grown tired of doing so. It is coming from within them, out of them. And so God's holiness is the source of our purpose and that of the angels. Notice it says, it repeats, holy, holy, holy. That is an ancient way of putting something and highlighting it or putting it in bold print. In this case, what's unique is oftentimes you only hear it twice. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He's the king of all kings. He's the lord of all lords. This is a unique opportunity in scripture. This is holiness to the superlative degree, if you want to get fancy with it. That means God is holy, holier, holiest. There is nothing other. And it's intoxicating. It draws people into it. It's magnifying. And so this repetition used by Isaiah and other biblical writers is placing it in bold print before us. Just as we sang just moments ago, we will continue to do for all of eternity. God is holy, holy, holy. But that holiness is also aggressive. It is holy other. It's invigorating, but it's also aggressive. Look at the end. What do the angels say? And the whole earth is filled with his glory. The earth, his glory is going forth. But just to give you understanding, what's the relationship between holiness and glory? Think of it as ho- ho- glory is holiness's wrapper. It's what we experience. It's the tangible element of God's holiness. And that glory is either already filled the earth or it one day will fill the earth where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. God's holiness is going forth. That tells us it is not docile. It is not tame. It's not laissez-faire. It doesn't sit back and wait. God's holiness is aggressive when those are con- people are confronted by it. It requires a decision. It results in action in the mind. Thoughts fill us, like praise coming out of the angels. Same too with Isaiah. His holiness, God's holiness, it stands before Isaiah. And the next thing is, after it's aggressive, it goes forward. It's confronting. God's holiness is confronting When Isaiah sees God in his glory, he is frightened. He is terrified. Because unlike the angels, he immediately knows he is unclean. He is unworthy. God's holiness confronts sin. God's holiness confronts anything that does not align with his character and nature. It's an affront to him. It's rebellion. His holiness confronts even the inanimate objects of the temple. As this praise of the angels are going forth, what's happening in this temple? The very foundations are shaking. God's holiness 
is being drawn into our minds right now, and you and I have no way of fully grasping that image. I would love to say, God, I want to see that, and yet there's a, there should be a little trepidation to go, but really? Do you really want that? Because the result is what Isaiah experiences. As Isaiah sees this holiness being put before him, and he sees the angels praising and worship, instead of him joining in that praise and worship, which I'm sure he would like to do, he knows he cannot. And so, yes, we can imagine being Isaiah in some ways, but we have the benefit of just reading about it, let alone living it. But for a moment, God is peeling back the veil of heaven to reveal what takes place when those who stand before him. The next thing, the holiness of God reveals the depravity of mankind, resulting in the terror of mankind. God's holiness reveals the depravity of mankind. Isaiah 5, look what he's doing. He sees the angels praise, but he has a different response. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips, living amongst a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. The whole of God's holiness, in all of its goodness, reveals Isaiah how lost and wicked he is. He says, woe is me, for I am ruined. This terminology of woe, it's not a passing expression. It's not, oh, bummer, ah, oh, dang it, I messed up. That is clearly not the case here but it's a substantive exasperation of lament. Every fiber of his being is crying out, woe is me. Deep guilt and sorrow has overcome Isaiah, and it's because God's holiness reveals more than his wrongdoing or ceremonial uncleanliness. It reveals the deep, utter decay of his soul. Isaiah is ruined but why does he focus on his lips? Why does Isaiah cry out, I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips? And then why a little bit later does the angel come take a coal and press it against his lips? What's, what's so significant about lips? Why not heart? Why not his soul? I think two reasons. First, what's the proper response to seeing a holy and righteous God? Praise and adoration for him. Worship, but he's incapable of doing so. He can't. But then too, Jesus says this in the Gospels. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isaiah is acutely aware he has used his words, his mouth, his voice, and his heart to being praised to himself and not rightly to God. I'm a people of unclean lips. I have desired to be a self-God rather than to acknowledge the only true righteous God. And so what comes out of a person's mouth reveals what's in our heart. Is there something yesterday or this weekend or week you would like to take back and shove back in? As I walk in every church every Sunday, I think Saturday night, man, can I step in there and worship God? There are things I must confess and bring before him before I can utter words of praise because I use this mouth to defame God and to glorify him. But I pray, God, may it never be so. Rid me of sin. And so Isaiah is made low. Woe is me. Notice, I think in life, I've grown up and I've recognized, I, I sense two types of saying sorry. I don't know, you can agree with me or not. 
There's the, I'm sorry because I've done something wrong, and then there's, I'm sorry because I got caught. Do you guys, you guys see, have you experienced the difference? I had this in my life. It was palpable about six, seven years ago when my youth pastor, and then he was my supervisor as I started in ministry as a junior high director, uh, he called me one night because I became a youth pastor, and he called me and says, hey, man, I need to confess to you, I, I crossed some boundaries with a student. I'm sorry. And in the process of that conversation, I was a little shocked, a little in awe, but I'm like, okay, we, we mess up from time to time. I get it. I just asked him, is there anything else, man? And he said no. Over the course of the next four months, there was a lot more that came out. He ended up going to jail for about a year, no longer in ministry, and really rocked my understanding of what it meant to be a pastor. I had to, I had to walk back a lot of things. But I stayed with him for the most part um, but through that time. But when he went to jail, there was a difference. He was at first sorry for getting caught. But as he steps into jail, he was now sorry for what he had done. There was true brokenness and sorrow. I'm sure you can imagine an image like that, a picture when someone is truly broken, every fiber of their being is made low. That's what happens in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And even that image of my youth pastor, or you and I have, we have confessed things that even barely scratches the surface. It hardly conveys the depths of Isaiah's sorrow in this passage. When he says, woe is me, it's not, I I did something wrong. He is bringing a curse upon himself. This terminology of woe is used throughout Scripture to bring a curse to somebody. Lamentations 5.16 says, The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Jesus will say this to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, of dill, of cumin, and you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus will even say this to his disciples. In Luke chapter 17, verse 1, offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Isaiah is a prophet calling the nation to repentance. And those that don't, he says, woe to you. You will will incur wrath and judgment, but he begins recognition in his calling, woe is me. Before Isaiah can step out into this world proclaiming the message of repentance before God, God brings him low. He recognizes the depths of his own sin. Now, why would God do this? Why would God want his holiness to bring us low, to have us feel ruined, every fiber of our being know that we have rebelled against this king? We stand in opposition to him. Because I think like Isaiah, we're sinners. Not because we sin, but because we're born with a sinful nature. It's baked into the cake, if you will. That's why Paul writes to the Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of this glory of God. For in Isaiah's hopeless terror, God's holiness is accomplishing its ends. It's producing in Isaiah the very thing it ought to. It leads people to repentance. True repentance. An acknowledgement that we are not gods. God being God offends human pride because if God is God, brothers and sisters, we are not See, God's holiness results in atonement for the repentant or destruction for the rebellious. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. 
So although our natural minds can never grasp the true fullness of God's holiness, our souls still feel the effect of it. Our souls still have an acknowledgement. Something is off. There was a night in undergrad when I was at Biola when I asked for God to reveal the depths of my sin to me. Now, I'm not proud of that prayer, nor do I advise that prayer, but I prayed it, okay? If you would like to pray it, here's my warning to you. Be ready. Because God in his grace revealed to me only a part of it. There was a lot of things going on in my life. There was a recognition. Am I called to be in ministry? Can I actually pastor? Am I worthy enough to take this message before people? And I asked, let me feel the depths of my sin. And I will tell you, God opened the veil just a little bit. And I will never pray that prayer again. Because in that moment, I was distraught. Sorrow overcame my feelings. Joy seemed to have vanished. And all I could do in that moment was just repent. Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Lead me out of this. May it never be so again. And here's the beauty. In that moment, and as is this in Isaiah, as Isaiah is repenting, crying out to God, God in his justice, he would be justified if it ends right here. God could obliterate him. That is fine. God has the prerogative to do so. And yet, God finds pleasure in approaching this ruined sinner. God goes forward and draws near to this sinner. No imagery is wasted in this account. And I believe we're supposed to analyze the the elements of this story in great detail to draw out the importance of what God is doing in our life. So the first thing, God draws near to the sinner. It's not the other way around. God is not waiting for someone to produce a holiness, a good reason, a, a grace response. God draws near to the sinner first and foremost. God is the agent of salvation for all people and for all time. And even in Isaiah's sin, God delights in restoring his creation to himself. His holiness is accomplishing its end. It's producing in Isaiah an awareness that would seek for him to repent, which literally means to return, to turn and walk in another direction. God is pleased by this. See, his holiness first exposes our filthiness, but then it provides a way for our cleanliness. It offers a path. And so God draws near to the sinner. But then God provides the sacrifice for the sinner. The angel takes the coal from the altar and touches it to his lips. But that coal comes from the altar. What is the altar? It's the place of sacrifice. It's a place where a substitute is offered in place for the one who is restored. This is the smoke that is filling the temple. The sacrifice has been offered. And now the angel comes and takes a coal. And this idea is is clearly a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, paying for the penalty of our sin as a substitute in our place. Notice, God is the one who makes a way. He provides this sacrifice. Isaiah did nothing for it. He did not ask for it. He did not even expect it. And yet God draws near to him with the provision of a sacrifice. And then when he touches his lip, God justifies the sinner. So imagine for the moment, just picture it, of a hot burning coal touching your lips. You and I, we may not have experienced that, but we've all had cracked, chapped lips and drinking lemonade. You know what that feeling's like? Oh, that pain and anguish. This is an immensely greater pain and anguish, but there's no hesitation on the part of Isaiah. He doesn't 
hesitate, to receive the coal that touches his lips. And why? Because the meaning of that interaction is greater than the mere pain that it does to touch his lips. The sacrifice and the atonement that took place on the altar is now applied to Isaiah in its fullness, in totality. Isaiah is now clean. This has touched your lips. Your iniquity is removed and your sin is covered. That's what atoned means. It is a past tense thing now. And so now Isaiah stands as the angels do before God, blameless. God's holiness is accomplishing its end. It has sinners recognize their sinfulness and they repent. It's a beautiful picture, but it's ultimately a shadow of what God has done for us through the power and work of Christ. See, God's holiness exposes our filthiness, yet provides a way for our cleanliness. Yet if a person refuses this work, if Isaiah were to refuse that coal touching his lips, he stands condemned as a rebellious, as a rebel in the realm. And God must do away with that in his holiness. There can be no others. There are no other rivals, for he is holy, holy, holy. And so what happens? Is this the end? He, he touches his lip. Isaiah is atoned for. He's justified. But God's holiness, although it produced sheer terror initially, now his holiness is Isaiah's safety. God's holiness goes before something that is terrifying to something that is comforting. Because God's holiness draws saints into faithful service. God's holiness now draws Isaiah to worship and to serve. Isaiah 6 and 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am, send me. And he replied, Go, say to the people, Keep listening, but do not understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull, deafen their ears, and blind their eyes. Otherwise, they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back, and be healed. Do you see the childlike excitement in Isaiah when he says, here I am, send me. Again, no hesitation. There is no pause indicated. God issues a question. Isaiah rises in response. Why? Because his holiness is drawing him in, just like the angels for all of eternity since creation are now going to be proclaiming, holy, holy, holy. So too is Isaiah now drawn into service unto God. But notice the uniqueness. If you had a simple reading of this command, of what God says, go now, does God actually want to see, save and to heal his people? Look at the simple reading of this. Keep listening, but don't understand. Keep looking, but do not perceive. Make, their, make the minds of these people dull. Does God actually want to accomplish this going? And yet what is God revealing to Isaiah. That faithful service is not worldly success. God is being candid with Isaiah. We may initially perceive that God's reluctant to have his people know the truth, but this is actually God's candid honesty with Isaiah. The people will harden their hearts to this message because of the sinful nature that resides within all of us. For we desire to be self-gods, Therefore, this message of a holy and righteous God requiring repentance to have people turn from their wicked ways and to pursue a life of righteousness before God by receiving the, by salvation as a gift of grace, this message will dull people's minds. 
It will darken their heart. It will blind their eyes. See, worldly success of winning over thousands, Isaiah, it's not going to happen. We, we know and look at the literal story of the nation of Israel. They refuse 60-odd chapters of Isaiah as him proclaiming this message of repentance and turning. But eventually the nation falls. Judgment came. And so herein lies the reason Paul quotes it in Acts 28 to the Jews in Rome. They don't need superficial healing. They don't need a ceremonial washing. They need to be restored unto God through the atonement of Christ. See, the book of Acts is filled with gut-wrenching stories of worldly failure. The martyrdom of Stephen, the riots of Ephesus, the ridicule that happened to Paul in Athens, Paul's stoning, and the list can go on. His shipwreck. There are stories of tragedy throughout the book of Acts, and yet intermittent through all of that is, but the church continued to grow. Therefore, what truly is faithful service rendered unto God? Faithful service hopes and promises given. Biblical hope is not I wish for something to happen. Biblical hope is I expect it to happen. Faithful service expects in the promises that are given. Verse 11, then I said, until when, Lord? How long must I take this message? How long must this message go forth into this world? It's a valiant question. Have you not asked it before the Lord? God, it's been 2,000 years. How long, O oh Lord? It seems that the gospel has touched almost every place in the world. How long? Until when, Lord? And he replies, until the cities lie in ruin without inhabitants. Houses are without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again. Like the tabernacle or the oak that leaves a stump when felled, the holy seed is the stump. Until when, O oh Lord? How long will we continue to be your witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth? Until the end of days. Until the final day. Until the day of judgment goes before this earth. But take heart. There will be a remnant. Although the gospel and the book of Acts and the relentless gospel going forward has produced tragic event after tragic event, the little reprieve that we get but the church continued to grow is promises fulfilled. 500 years ago, the Reformation took place. God is faithful to his church. There will be a remnant going forward. From now until the end of days is the Lord's answer for how long we hope and promises fulfilled. Just like Jeff preached to us Last week, as a church that lives on this earth, as God's witnesses to this world, we live in between the land of promise and fulfillment. We long for the day. I long for the day. But God's holiness is ultimately drawing you and I into faithful service to expect his promises to be fulfilled. And so like the church in Acts, we're drawn into service of God. Are we? Are you and I actually drawn into service? Do we see God's holiness on display? Is his holy otherness something that we concern our minds with regularly? It ought to be. Because how do we actually fulfill this service? It's our mission statement as a church. If we do this well, we are in faithful service unto the Lord. That we gather as disciples to worship and in spirit and in truth. 
As the angels are in heaven proclaiming praise to God, we as a church must continually and regularly gather together to bring praise and worship and honor to God just as we did before the preaching and we're going to do after as a response. Are we going to worship in spirit and in truth? But then do we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are we content with our life and what we know about God in this world? Or are we longing to know more? As Isaiah looking into the fullness of the image of God and being transformed. And then do we go into the world proclaiming the gospel? We ought to. Our, God's holiness will draw us into that. But what holds us up is the uncertainty of the present. The uncertainty of the present. I, what I mean by that is what is currently going on. We're uncertain about, is this good? Is this right? Should it be better? I have said nothing about King Uzziah in verse 1. All this took place in the year King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was one of the few good kings in Judah. He reigned for 52 years. He introduced religious reform. He brought stability to the kingdom. He left the people with confidence that they will be able to withstand their enemies. But this is the year he died. With his passing, those days are passing away. The Assyrian king has his eyes fixed on conquest. But in the year King Uzziah died, what did Isaiah see? He saw the high king of heaven seated on his throne, high and lifted up. And the temple was filled with the hem of his robe. And the seraphim were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies whose glory fills the whole earth. Brothers and sisters, that Lord still sits on his throne. He is still high and lifted up from that day until this one. We need to be reminded that this is the God who gave us the relentless gospel and continues to call his church to carry it into the ends of the earth. And so as he told his disciples so long ago, he continues to tell us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And yet for this to take place in our life, we need to be reminded that we serve a holy God. We serve a terrifying God. Yet he is an atoning God who delights in saving his people. We serve a God who is honest, yet candid with his people. A God who loves his creation, who pursues his creation, who atones for the sins of his creation, and establishes his creation in righteousness. Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of God that wells up within us a desire that says, here I am, send me. Let's pray. Father God, will you anoint us with your spirit? Will you give us a passion to proclaim your name? God, will you also give us wisdom and insight to discern the places of our life we need to bring before your altar and confess? Where pride and sin has found a foothold, Father, will you and your holiness expose it and draw it into the light that we may offer it to you and receive forgiveness? For we know what your Son has accomplished on the cross has atoned for our sins, that we may be drawn into service for you. Father, will you anoint, your, uh, will you anoint us to sing you praise and worship and in spirit and in truth, that we may find fullness and wholeness as the angels do, proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.